In this world, there's two kinds of people, my friend. Those with loaded guns, and those who dig. Live from a Montana wilderness fortress, Wednesday nights at 9 Eastern, this is the Matt Christensen Hour. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Matt Christensen. This is the Matt Christensen Hour on Tenet Media. Thank you for tuning in. I am joined, as always, by my producer down under, Tim. Good day, Tim. Good day, and on the slight chance she's watching, congratulations to Blonde for the new addition to the family. Hopefully she's not watching. Hopefully she's taking care of that baby. But yeah, for people who are viewers of both shows... You can uh, get the baby story on Sunday. She will be back, I have confirmed. But uh, that'll be over on my channel Sunday night, as always. In the meantime, great guest tonight. Uh, Coming up shortly, Harvard Law Professor Lawrence Lessig on the Trump ballot disqualification case that will be heard by the Supreme Court next week. That's coming up on February 8th. Uh, That'll be next Thursday. Professor Lessig is no fan of Trump. But he is a fan of honesty in the application of the law, and he's a fan of institutional integrity in government, so he explains his perspective on why the Supreme Court should and likely will reverse the Colorado Supreme Court decision to disqualify Trump from their ballot. Before we get to that, though, uh, I have to talk about this insane beheading murder in Pennsylvania, the aftermath of which was actually posted in a YouTube video that remained up for several hours yesterday. The killer was arrested uh, late last night, and uh, he had a lot of political thoughts to offer in this video as well. Then later after the interview, we'll talk uh, Ilhan Omar and Cori Bush's latest controversies, neither of which are particularly surprising, but both are certainly worthy of scrutiny. And of course, we'll take a couple email questions to close, and we'll check in with your Super Chats on YouTube and rumble as well. But on this insane true crime story, this news broke last night. It was so crazy, I thought it was probably a bit, maybe a prank. Like someone made an insane YouTube video saying that he had beheaded his father, but it was all some poor taste joke or something. It is 100% real, 100% legit. 33-year-old Justin Moan, uh, he posted this video. Originally, I thought it was live streamed. I guess he po- he recorded the video and posted it to YouTube on Tuesday. And in the video, which, of course, I won't show here, so don't worry about that. But in the video, he showed the severed head of his father, Michael Moan, who was 68 years old. This display was part of a 15-minute message about the betrayal of uh, the federal government. And it was a call to war against the federal government. Michael Moan's father was a federal employee of some sort, 20-year federal employee. He didn't explain, as far as I saw, exactly what his dad did for the federal government, but he was a federal employee. Police responded to reports of this death in Levittown, Pennsylvania, on Tuesday night, discovered Michael Moan's body in the bathroom, Police found the man's head in a plastic bag in a bedroom next to the bathroom, which is exactly as it appeared in the video. There was a machete and a large kitchen knife in the bathtub and rubber gloves on a desk. Michael's body was discovered by his wife, who called police. Justin, the killer's son, had already fled at that point. 
he was located Tuesday night uh, or early, uh, early Wednesday in Wednesday morning last night at some point. Uh, he was in his dad's vehicle two hours away in uh, Lebanon, Lebanon County, Pennsylvania. Forgive a mispronunciation if I have there, but uh, he was arrested and charged with murder and abuse of a corpse. He's now held in custody without bail after such a heinous crime. But here's some local reporting this morning confirming all of the details. It, it was exactly as it appeared in the video. The charges have absolutely been filed overnight. 33-year-old Justin Moan of Middletown has been charged with the murder of his father, as well as the abuse of a corpse. Uh, it's confirmed at this hour the victim was beheaded by the suspect, guys, and he was caught last night about 10 o'clock out near Fort Indian Town Gap near uh, Lebanon. But right now it's better uh, to put it in the words of Middletown uh, Police Captain Pete Feeney. Uh, Captain, thank you so much. He was arraigned at 4 a.m. by video. Uh, the judge denied him bail, so he'll be going up to Bucks County Correctional Facility. I'd spoken with Captain Feeney a little while ago when we were talking about it, and I asked him to confirm the actual beheading, and he goes, well, it's kind of out there, right? And he was referring to a, a YouTube video uh, that the suspect, uh, Mr. Moan, put out where he literally showed the victim's head in the video. So law enforcement confirming the authenticity of all of it, that the video, the head in the video, all of that was real. And the politics of the video are a big part of the story, since that was the guy's stated reason for killing his dad. Now, I watched the full 14-minute video, 14 minutes and change, I will link a source that has it in the show sources, as we always post. Uh, that'll be linked from the description. Obviously, I'm not going to show any of that on the stream, even just the stuff with him talking. Uh, but if you do watch the video, the head is in a plastic bag when it's shown. So, yeah, it is. It's it's horrifically gruesome. I don't mean to sugarcoat it. It's not actually as horrifically gruesome as I expected because I, I wasn't expecting the plastic bag to be there. But as far as what the guy actually said in the video, he said that the federal government has declared war on the American states. Left-wing mobs ruin the cities with impunity. Uh, the federal government has inflated the economy to destruction. An army of illegals has infiltrated our border. He declared himself the commander of America's national network of militias. And he said that this network of militias, and really anybody... Uh, outside of the federal government's employment or operation, he, he said that all federal employees should be killed on site or captured. All federal property should be seized. Federal law enforcement uh, in particular should be killed or captured. And he urged everyone to earn their place in heaven by sending a traitor to hell. He did clarify or uh, exempt state government officials from this uh, order. He said only feds are targeted. He actually declared himself the acting president and ordered Joe Biden to surrender. And he issued a million dollar bounty for several officials captured alive, half a million if they're killed. Christopher Ray, Merrick Garland, Bill Barr, and John Roberts. He also issued a $100,000 bounty for any federal judge. Now, where he is getting... Obviously, we're not dealing with the sanest mind here. I don't know if he has this money available to him or how he expects these million dollar bounties to be considered credible, but that's, that's what he said. He said the hunting of these traitorous federal, federal personnel will continue until demands are met. And the demands were listed as these resignation of all federal employees, cancellation of public debt and the fed close the border, deport illegals and all human trafficking 
and gender propaganda in schools. And he said that once he has power, he will restore America's cities and Antifa and the the Rainbow Mafia, Black Lives Matter, and others. He says the federal government has disallowed and denied his attempts at peaceful solutions. Those attempts at peaceful solutions, he says he was a whistleblower. He formerly worked at Microsoft. He said Microsoft had some sort of tax evasion scheme going on. He blew the whistle on that to the IRS. The IRS didn't care. He says he tried to get the feds to stop what he called Denver labor racketeering. I'm not exactly sure what he meant by that, but he wasn't happy with what was going on there. He also sued the federal government unsuccessfully. And then toward the end, he said he would have been the unanimously elected president of the United States, but he was stopped by the FBI. And he calls on people to kill their federal employee friends and family as well as he did. Yeah, Tim, you had a thought. Yeah, just quickly before we move on. And admittedly, this guy seems like an absolute nut bar. So let's take that into account. Um, But when he said the part there of the federal government has disallowed and denied his attempts at peaceful solution, there are a few areas where people need to keep that in mind is that certain things are going to happen. You know, if someone commits a crime, justice will be enacted, for example. And it's just a matter of are we going to push to make sure there's a process so that can happen in a peaceful way yeah. and an ordered well, way. Listening Again, to this. He's a, a nutcase, yeah. but, you know. Uh, one thing I wanted to clarify, too, for because this. I'm already seeing this. This is a MAGA extremist. This guy is uh, he's a result of Trump's rhetoric. Okay, listening to the video, he never mentioned Trump once. Uh, and and could you characterize him as saying conservative things? I guess. I mean, he he hates the federal government for reasons X, Y, and Z. And maybe those things are conservative. But if you listen to him, I don't think he's at no point does he say only Donald Trump can save us or please put Donald Trump in the White House to fix all of these problems with the federal government. This is a guy who hates the federal government, period, and sees violence as the only solution to the federal government problem. So this was not a Trumpy thing. This was not, uh, th- this was not, you know, work within the system to elect our guy type thing. If you listen to the video and, um, and yeah, it, it, it was a strange video to watch because listening to it, Tim, I, I, the point you're making characterizes it correctly. Now, I, the murder is insane. Declaring himself the rightful president of the United States who would have been unanimously elected were it not for the FBI who stopped him. That's insane. It's not like he made arguments without faults, but for much of the video, he is speaking calmly in a coherent, understandable way about real problems. He's clearly reading from a script that he had written ahead of time, clearly thought about. So I'm not sure what's wrong with this guy medically or clinically that led him to decide that murdering his dad was the way to kick off the boogaloo. Uh, but it, it is a completely bizarre story that, that's so ridiculous. I thought it was fake at first, but... Uh, Truth is stranger than fiction, I guess. One other note about the story, though, because one one oddity about it is how long it was actually up on YouTube. It was up for a couple hours and viewed more than 5,000 times before it was taken down. It was called Moan's Militia, Call to Arms for American Patriots. And as far as I've seen, YouTube's only explanation for why it took so long is just this generic statement. YouTube has strict policies prohibiting graphic violence and violent extremism. Video removed for violating that policy. Teams closely tracking, blah, blah, blah. If he had said the N-word, would it have lasted up on YouTube as long as it did in this case? I've noticed several instances of YouTube being lightning quick to censor mere words and opinions. Especially if you had the wrong opinion about, I don't know, a certain injectable 
from Pfizer or something like that. I've had multiple episodes on my own channel where claims were made even in a joking manner where the material was taken down faster than an actual severed head in this case. So, you know, the, that's that's YouTube policy in action for you, I suppose. Um, before we get to the interview, the other news item I want to discuss, of course, at the end of last week, crazy lady E. Jean Carroll secured an $83 million verdict in her defamation lawsuit against Donald Trump. I spoke about that story at length on my Sunday show this week, so I'm not going to revisit the case. Either her claims of being sexually assaulted or raped by Trump at a New York department store at some point generally in the mid-1990s, maybe, though she can't remember. But in case anyone was holding on to any remaining opinion that this woman was actually brutally attacked, as she claimed in court and on Anderson Cooper on CNN when she described rape as sexy a few years ago, she appeared on Rachel Maddow on Monday with her lawyers to remind you of the flippant attitude with which she views this case. Asked about what women's rights causes she plans to support with her millions of dollars, if she gets those, E. Jean Carroll said, actually, she's going shopping for frivolous things, and she offers Rachel Maddow uh, a penthouse and a vacation. You've talked about using some of Trump's money that you're about to get um, to help shore up women's rights. Do you know what that might be, what that might look like? Yes, Rachel. Yes. Tell me. I had such such great ideas (laughs) for all the good I'm going to do with this money. First thing, Rachel, you and I are going to go shopping. We're going to get completely (laughs) new wardrobes, new shoes, motorcycle for Crowley, new fishing rod for Robbie. Rachel, what do you want? Penthouse? It's yours, Rachel. Penthouse and uh, France? You want France? You want to go fishing in France? No? Oh, all right, all right. Okay. That's a joke. (laughs) Although if, if me fishing in France... Could yeah. do something for women's rights, I would take the hit. You know, I would obviously uh, take one for the team. That's a joke. It's <laughs> definitely a joke. So funny. What a hilarious joke. Now, the thing is, it likely is not a joke. If she does get the money, she will spend it on ridiculous things like this. You can guarantee it. But even if it is a joke, sure, I'm not the joke police. You can joke about any heinous thing that you want. But the question is, would an actual rape victim, and remember, that's what she claims to be, even though the jury didn't necessarily agree with the rape characterization. They said it was sexual abuse or some similar term. How many rape victims or sexual abuse victims do you know who joke about the assault in this way? Oh, I got violently raped and it was terrible, but it turned out all right because I I really cashed in and I got a sweet vacation in France or something like that. What a good deal. Ha 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 ha. Outside of the total lack of evidence for her claims, this is the biggest tell that it never happened. If it did, she would not be gleeful about it, even for 83 plus million dollars. Yeah, Tim. I don't know if you remember this, and I would encourage your audience to go look this up. On Anderson Cooper, she actually said, what happened to me was not sexual. So I really need someone to explain to me how either it was rape or it was sexual assault. But not a sexual form. She of meant it wasn't both. sexy because many people think rape is sexy. That was her point. Sexual Maybe, insofar she... as her organs were touched. Yeah, but it wasn't uh, gratifying was the point that she was making. Um, maybe, but she did outright say it wasn't what happened to me wasn't sexual. And it's like, well, how can either of it 
how can it be sexual assault? It seemed weird. Uh, well, I you're trying to find sense in an unsensible woman, but uh, fair enough. But hey, speaking of attacks on Trump, uh, that brings us to tonight's guest. Now, back a few weeks ago, when the Colorado Supreme Court determined that Trump is ineligible to be on that state's ballot pending a Supreme Court review because he's an insurrectionist. And per the 14th Amendment, uh, Section 3, insurrectionists are banned from holding federal office. I was reading an article by Harvard Law Professor Lawrence Lessig. And along with Kurt Lash at the University of Richmond Law School, Lessig was making the argument that the Supreme Court must reverse Colorado's decision. One of the arguments being considered, there are several that may defeat that particular decision from the Colorado Supreme Court. But one of the arguments being that Section 3, the Insurrection Clause, does not actually apply to the president. And so Tim uh, reached out to Professor Lessig for me and he agreed to come on and talk about what to expect from the Supreme Court when they consider this ballot disqualification case next week and the arguments for why the Colorado decision is wrong. Plus, uh, we actually get a little bit of Supreme Court inside insight as well, since um, Professor Lessig was a clerk for the late Justice Antonin Scalia in the earlier days of his time on the bench. Interviews about 28 minutes. We will see you soon. Welcome back. I am pleased to host my guest for the evening. He is Harvard Law professor, author, and activist Lawrence Lessig. Mr. Lessig, thanks for making time for me. Thanks for having me, Matt. I first found your work a few weeks ago because I was reading legal arguments about the 14th Amendment's insurrection clause. And that, of course, is in the news because states have moved to remove Donald Trump from the ballot on that basis. Supreme Court will hear arguments soon. But I came across your piece titled, The Supreme Court Must Unanimously Strike Down Trump's Ballot Removal. Can you give me a summary of that argument? Yeah, I think that the core question is whether Section 3 of the 14th Amendment should be understood to be self-executing, meaning it has a force regardless of whether Congress has enacted a statute to set out the terms for its application. Um, you know, the 14th Amendment has five sections. The fifth section, section five, says that Congress um, shall pass laws to enforce the 14th Amendment. And though certain parts of the 14th Amendment are clearly self-executing, like the first sentence says that you are a citizen where you were born, if you were born in the United States, a citizen of a state in the United States, that's self-executing. We don't know anything for Congress from that. There are other parts of the 14th Amendment that are clearly not self-executing. So for example, section two says that if a state excludes male citizens from the right to vote, they were targeting black, they were trying to protect black male citizens at the time, but if they make it hard, make it so black male citizens can't vote or male citizens, it says, then their representation in Congress should be reduced. 
Um, that clause nobody has ever thought is self-executing in the sense that a court could march in and declare that you know the state of Texas has two fewer Congress people because a whole bunch of um, people were not able to vote. Um, so section two is clearly not self-executing. The question I asked is whether section three should be thought of as self-executing or does Congress have to pass a statute like with section two that says here are the rules under which somebody can be excluded because they've engaged in insurrection. And I think that the dynamic you're seeing play out right now is a pretty good argument for the need for Congress to pass a statute before the provision can be made applicable against a candidate. Because you've got different states looking at the same question, coming up with different answers um, under procedures nobody under, nobody knows what those procedures should be. What, what's the burden of proof? What, what are you trying to prove? Like, what is the activity that constitutes an insurrection in the sense that the 14th Amendment means? So I th- it's, those are all good reasons to say that there's no there's no necessity to say that this clause should be interpretable by a state court to exclude a candidate from pre- for president. And instead, at most, what it says to Congress is, if you want to pass a law that says, this is what you uh, have to prove to kick somebody off a ballot, whether they're a senator or a congressman or a president, um, for engaging in insurrection, have at it, go prove that. But until Congress does that, I think it just is a mess to imagine courts, especially state courts, reaching out to say that people have been excluded from the ballot. One of the things I'm fascinated by that you wrote in your piece, and you referenced uh, fellow law professor Kurt Lash in his work, is whether the intent of the language, whether it was intended to exclude the president or not, when, when we list members of Congress, other federal officials, and whether the president falls under the, the terms of Section 3. And... Um, I'm fascinated by the history of that. Kurt Lash's work, as you uh, referenced, notes that early drafts of the 14th Amendment included the president in that language. The draft that was later adopted excluded the president. So it would seem, as you write, that that's not a mistake. But at least in my reading, it's hard to find a lot of explanation for why, why that choice was made to remove the language about the president. Do you have a sense of the history on that? I think this is a hard question. I, I think it. I, I could see it going either way. Um, the history you've described suggests that the president is not intended to be within the scope of the clause. On the other hand, the clause speaks of officers of the United States. And there's a big argument that's gone on forever about whether we should consider the president to be an officer of the United States. Um, and, uh, um, and so one, if you think that he is, then one way to read that history is to say there's no reason to have included that because the president um, would have been included as an officer of the United States. You didn't need to name him specially. A representative and a senator are not officers of the United States, so you did need to name them specially. Hmm. Um, So that's a way of reading it to say that it would have covered the president. Um, uh, But again, in my view, the right way to read it is it would cover the president but only if Congress actually does something to say, here's what you have to show to exclude the president. Assuming that the intent was to exclude the president, maybe I guess maybe the intent was just to pass it off to Congress. 
But without the historical explanation, I'm interested in the question of why as well. If the intent was, the, the authors of the 14th Amendment, the intent was to exclude, and I know you've just made the argument that perhaps that wasn't the intent, but different ways of interpreting it. If the intent was to exclude, what would the reason be? Why, why would they want to treat the president differently from other federal officials? Well, I mean... We only, I, you know, from my perspective, this is just pure speculation because we don't have any, you know, debates that are sort of saying, here's why we should exclude the president. Um, but, you know, you could say one reason to exclude the president is that he's the, and the vice president, is that they are the only national officers in the sense that they're the only people who um, are elected to cover the whole of the nation as opposed to one particular state. So that, so that, um, you know, again, as you're seeing right now, the kind of political gamesmanship that might induce a state to take steps to exclude a president are different from the gamesmanship to exclude a representative. If you're the state of Ohio and you exclude a representative because you say that he engaged in insurrection, you suffer. You, Ohio, suffer. And the voters in Ohio can be angry that, you know, prosecution of the state of Ohio kicked off a, a representative who they think shouldn't have been kicked off. So there's a, there's a way to make sure that anybody who kicks people off pays the price if, in fact, that's not the right thing to have been done. But at the federal level, for an officer who's covering the whole of the United States, there's only political opportunity, no cost. So if you know the state of Colorado kicks Ken, uh, Trump off and he's uh, not a popular candidate in the state of uh, Colorado, nobody's going to punish the people in Colorado for doing that. Um, but people in the state of Texas or Oklahoma might be really furious that he's been kicked off and um, they don't have an opportunity to do anything about it. So so I was offering in that piece a kind of a game theory reason why you might say it does make sense to exclude the national presidency, um, even though it, uh, it would make perfect sense to include local offices like Congress or Senator. Yeah, uh, which I found to be interesting. You're making the argument that it's kind of a tool for states to meddle with each other as opposed to just make their own yeah. internal decisions. Um, what do you make of the argument that that the that Section 3, this insurrection clause, was written with intent to apply to former Confederates only? I know you mentioned the argument of whether the 14th Amendment was supposed to be... Uh, was supposed to be prospective in the piece or not. What do you think the correct interpretation is on that? Well, I think the correct interpretation is probably they expected, they hoped that the only possible people it could apply to would be those who had just engaged in a, in a civil war against the United States. And they hoped there would never be a civil war again. Um, um, but you know, if there had been Civil War V2, you know, we came very close to Civil War V2 in 1876 with a presidential election, which um, uh, was, you know, decided by a commission um, by one vote in favor of Rutherford Burchard Hayes, even though um, Tilden had won the popular vote. Many people thought that would have been a civil war again. And there, there were indeed troops in various uh, states that were mustered uh, in preparation for another civil war. So if there had been a civil civil war in 1876 or 1877, I would be surprised if people didn't think that the same clause could apply um, because of the language of the clause. Um, it, it's stretching it a bit to see it applying in the context of 
2021, because I just feel like, you know, I wrote an earlier piece about this, which, which you know, basically said, I, I just feel like we should not be applying the insurrection clause in a context where people are fighting about the actual results of an actual election. Um, you know, uh, people have different views about Donald Trump's intent and and I should be clear, I mean, it's clear to you because you read the articles, but maybe not to people who are listening. I, I'm not a supporter of Donald Trump. Indeed, I'm a strong opponent of Donald Trump and I desperately want that him, he not be elected. Um, but, uh, but, you know, the, um, I, I, I think the one concern about thinking about applying insurrection in the context of an election is that an election has all sorts of fights about what should be counted and what shouldn't be counted. And there's like a vigorous contest all the way up to the end when it's resolved. And it feels like it's just dangerous to start saying you've got insurrection um, in the fight uh, um, to resolve it one way or the other, um, assuming that you're not intending for there to be violence. And I actually don't think Donald Trump was stupid enough to intend that there be violence on January 6th. I think things got out of hand. And because they got out of control, all sorts of violence broke out. But that was a really stupid thing to, to, to want. I think what he wanted was to create a condition of um, you know, presence and pressure. I think he wanted, he explicitly, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley both argued there should be another commission like there was in 1876 to sit down and look at um, what the actual issues in each of these states were and whether there was anything sufficient to overturn the results. But all of that's very different from saying, you know, we wanted to literally get elected uh, with guns at the heads of, uh, um, of representatives. Um, and so my view is as long as you're not engaging in actual violence or intending to engage in violence, the fight about who wins an election is not an insurrection. It's a fight of democracy. And insurrection is the thing that you do when you, you know, say, okay, we lost the democracy, and now we're going to try to, uh, by force, over overturn or overtake through coup or whatever the government that's that's in place. Um, if you think that's what Donald Trump intended, okay, fine, then call that an insurrection. But if you don't think he intended coup, if you don't think he intended to use force to, you know, coerce Democrats to vote for him. Then I just think it was a you know a sloppy um, event that you know trans transformed itself into a bunch of violence, but that doesn't make what Trump did insurrection. How do you think the Supreme Court will decide the case? I think they're going to work as hard as they can to avoid kicking Donald Trump off the ballot, and just from a um, institutional perspective. Um, it would be disastrous for the court to kick Donald Trump off the ballot. Um, because I think that, you know, when you've got a guy who is the presumptive nominee of the party removed by the Supreme Court, the anger at the court would be overwhelming because the basis for removing him is deeply contested. You know, people just don't see the same facts. They don't you know, red and blue look at the same thing and see something completely different. So I just think institutionally it would be disastrous. And um, 
and and so I think they're they see that, and I think they're going to try to find the best possible way for them to to retreat. And, and I think the best possible way for them to retreat from doing that is a very principled move, just simply to say it's not for us on our own to to describe the contours of what Section Three requires. Congress is told by Section 5 they should pass a law to enforce it. So pass a law. Say, here's what you have to prove to prove somebody's engaged in insurrection. And the next time there's something like this, if, that, if the, that's proven, then that person can be excluded. But we're not going to do that on our own. And we're certainly not going to let the Supreme Court of Colorado do it on their own. Yeah, that was my next question is, if we expect they will reverse the Colorado Supreme Court, what reasoning will they take? And you've, you've sort of answered that ahead of time, but I'm curious what you think about some potential other arguments that the Supreme Court could consider. As in, could they say, could they make a more definitive statement? No, Donald Trump is not an insurrection or an insur uh, insurrectionist per reasoning A, B, and C. Uh, or do you think maybe there's some sort of due process argument that that they might pick up on? As in, what what were the terms that were used to assign that that title to him? I don't think that they're going to engage in, in an analysis of whether he, in fact, engaged insurrection, because it's a, because basically the way it's set up, that's a fact finding question. And Colorado made the courts made a fact finding. That's another reason to see this whole process is kind of crazy, because, you know, you can imagine 50 jurisdictions, 51 jurisdictions going through the same fact finding process and coming up with 51 different answers. Like, you know, so, so that's one of the reasons why this is a weird process. So I don't think that they'll decide it like that. Um, uh, I do think that they'll decide it, and I don't think they're going to decide it by saying um, the president is not an officer. I, I just think it's too much of a reach. Um, and there are too many earlier, including conservative opinions, that sort of say that he is an officer of the United States. I, I think what they're going to do is they're going to say, um, as I predict they're going to do what I've argued. I, I predict they're going to say it's not self-executing. Like Section Two, it's not self-executing. Section Four is not is weirdly partly self-executing. So we just say Congress can pass a law, and if Congress passes a law, that's fine. But we're not going to, on our own, or allow the courts on their own to, 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 to do it. In you in your piece, you said you hope the Supreme Court decision is unanimous for the reasons you mentioned previously that it's important to the institutional integrity of the court and perhaps even the peace of the country. Is that what you expect, or do you think it will be a split decision? Um, I'm cautiously optimistic that if the court re re uh, reverses Colorado, it will do it unanimously. Um, you know, I think that the... Because, of course, the people who would be presumptively giving in in that context, um, the liberals on the court, um, I actually think have been, are, are, are deeply troubled about the institutional viability of the court. Um, and um, I know Elena Kagan is somebody who has spoken repeatedly about the need to think about the institutional health of the court. And so I think this will be a salient point for her and, you know, I hope that they, you know, the three of them can kind of bite their tongue um, and 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 go along because I know that they have frustrations with, the, with Donald Trump that they might want to express. 
if it's the other way and they affirm, um, I'm pretty sure that they're not going to do it unanimously, even though, again, I think they should do it unanimously. I think there are just times that the court needs to act without inviting any partisan reflection. That was like Brown versus Board of Education, where um, Chief Justice Warren twisted everybody's arm to say, we're not going to release this opinion unless it's unanimous, and I want all of you to sign on to this opinion. Um, this is the same. This is just as significant uh, because... Uh, you know, we are on the precipice right now. I mean, you look at what's happening in Texas, it's astonishing how close we are to challenging the very premise of the federal system that we've established. And this is just one more um, battle that we just can't afford, I think. I know in the piece, you if the Supreme Court were to affirm Colorado and allow the disqualification of Trump from the Colorado ballot or other states that may join, you explicitly warn of potential civil war in there, um, which I don't think is necessarily hyperbolic. This would be a, a very serious conflict, I think. But how do you think that would develop if the Supreme Court were to affirm Colorado? Would you expect to see a big wave of states joining in? I know different states probably have different systems of, of how this disqualification would actually happen. But how do you think 2024 would go if the Supreme Court said Colorado got it right? Well, you know, um, it's a complicated story because uh, most states are are not swing states. So Colorado is not a swing state. Donald Trump is not going to win Colorado. So the fact that he's excluded from the ballot isn't going to change the ultimate calculation to get to 270. Um, the real question is whether he would be kicked off of a red state or a swing state. Um, and... Uh, Maine is a interesting, you know, it's a potential swing state. So that could be costly to be thrown off of Maine. Um, I do think that the Supreme Court affirmed Colorado, you'd have huge pressure in a whole bunch of states for secretaries of state to follow and to remove him from the ballot. So I think his campaign unravels at that point. But I think in Donald Trump's mind, that just changes it to the next level of conflict, which is outside of the elections and much more um, a civil, maybe uh, a civil movement. Um, and that's where a civil war, I think, becomes, you know, something to worry about. You know, I think the, the reality of the United States is that we have an enormous amount of uh, military force spread throughout the United States in contexts that are not necessarily protected. Um, so, it's not hard to imagine many of these forts, especially in red state areas, being occupied, taken over by people who are insisting on um, their vision of the republic and like how to defend it. So, you know, it's it's astonishing to be at a point where we really need to think about just falling off the edge or off the cliff um, as a nation. But I think we're there. I, I think again, like I mentioned before. What's happening in Texas from a constitutional perspective is uh, astonishing. Like, you know, the idea that you would have a governor who's exp expressly rejecting the view of the Supreme Court is something that hasn't happened since Jackson in the, you know, in the in the middle and the beginning part of the 19th century. Um, and we thought that, you know, we 
resolve that in some sense. And, and you know, if you had asked 10 years ago whether any governor would ever do what is happening right now, no, no law professor would have said that he would have done something like this. And, and when we start talking about, okay, the National Guard is going to have to be federalized, and what happens when you actually try to federalize and they resist, um, you know, this is a mess. It's a nightmare. So we just don't need we need to minimize the number of these existential conflicts, not in, 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 increase them. And I think there's so many ways this court can avoid this being one more existential conflict for the Republic. And, and I expect they're going to, they're going to find a way to do that. Yeah. Uh, before I let you go, I'd like to ask you for a little more insight on the workings of the court. Cause I, I guess I could have assumed, but when you mentioned the politicking behind the scenes, with Brown v. Board. That's very interesting to me. And I was reading about your background. Am I correct that you clerked for Antonin Scalia? Yeah. Do you have any good Scalia stories? Because I'm a, I'm a big admirer of Scalia, not just the legal philosophy, but the writer. You know, whether you agree with Scalia opinions or not, it's always an entertaining read. So do you have any Scalia stories from your experience? Well, you know, he was a he was a great person to work for. Um, I mean, he was a tough boss, but he was he loved to laugh, and he you know he was very supportive of his clerks. Um, you know, the the dynamic of the court, though, that was surprising to me was how much of the communication and life of opinions was driven by clerks. So, hmm. you know, the justices would hear an argument, and then on Friday they would have a conference where they would decide how. Um, how it was going to be resolved and presumptively who was going to write the majority opinions and, and the dissents. And then the negotiation of the terms of those opinions would happen through drafts, which clerks were like shopping around. Like you would go, you know, I would go to the O'Connor chambers and say, here's what we're going to say. And what do you think? And is there going to be a problem with that? And um, so, um, and justices were very different about how much responsibility they took for their writing. So Justice O'Connor was very, you know, most of her writing was basically her clerks. Scalia, clerks would draft the first opinion, but he, every single word was his in the sense that he sat at the computer and worked through the draft uh, sentence by sentence to make sure it was everything he said was his. Uh, and, and he was unique in that regard, you're saying? Or is it just O'Connor who was a little more uh, clerk reliant? Um. It was a, it was a spectrum. Um, I think Stevens was the most responsible for what he wrote, um, and O'Connor maybe O'Connor and Marshall were probably the least responsible for what they wrote. But you know, I, I don't know anybody did systematic analysis of it. Um, uh, Harry Blackman was famous for there's something called shepherdizing, which is where you look at each case and you make sure it hasn't been overruled. It's the sort of thing that you learn in first year of law school and now computers do it. But Blackham was famous for like himself shepherdizing his own opinions, um, which kind of bizarre waste of uh, justice uh, resources. But um, so they were all very different about that. But um, I, you know, I, I think I was uh, fortunate to be at the beginning of Scalia's tenure as a justice where he still was working out um, how committed he was to originalism versus just what a conservative would think about any case. And there were a bunch of conflict cases where the originalist thing was not necessarily the conservative thing. For example, there was a case about when you were arrested, 
um, how quickly, without a warrant, how quickly did you have to be presented to a magistrate to show that there was probable cause to arrest you? Um, and the conservative intuition, O'Connor was drafting this opinion was, you know, whenever they get to it, a week, two weeks, whatever. Um, and Scalia said to me, like, tell me what the framers would have said. And I gathered every single arrest opinion from the uh, uh, late 18th century. And the answer of the framers was as soon as possible. If you have to wake the magistrate up, wake the magistrate up. Like the idea that you would hold somebody without a judicial finding of probable cause was outrageous. Um, and so Scalia took the extreme originalist position. He said no more than 24 hours. Um, and, and there were any number of cases where that was the way it worked out. There was a conservative intuition and an originalist view, and he just went with the originalist view. I don't think he was like that late in his career, um, but you know, I was fortunate to see him work through those principles early in his career. Just so I understand, are you saying you think he moved from an originalist to conservative or the other way on his philosophy? He, I, I mean, he was, he disciplined himself less with originalist philosophy okay. when it conflicted with his conservative intuitions. I mean, okay. often they overlap, right? So, you know, about abortion, like the originalist intuition and the conservative uh, uh, intuition overlap. So there's no conflict. But where there is a conflict, um, I think early in his career, he was more willing to do the originalist thing, even if it was not conservative, than later in his career, where he might have just shut his eyes, turned a blind eye to the originalist argument and just done the conservative. Well, thanks for your insight on that. It's, it's really interesting stuff. But uh, that is my guest, Harvard Law Professor Lawrence Lessig. Uh, Mr. Lessig, I have linked your website, Lessig.org, as well as your Twitter handle, at Lessig. Uh, in the description. Is there anywhere else you'd like to send people if they want to find your work? No, that's good. Those are good sources. All right. Well, thank you not only for your time, but for your clear writing and your explanation and helping me understand this story and, and this issue. I appreciate it. Great. Thank you. Again, to my guest, Professor Lawrence Lessig. Find his work at lessig.org, linked in the description. Now, you may have heard a thing or two during the duration of that interview that perhaps you disagree with. Perhaps you would have liked some pushback from me. A uh, couple things on that. Number one, I very much appreciate someone of a different political perspective being willing to talk to me. So I'm interested in his legal expertise not really interested in starting a debate about Greg Abbott at the border or something like that. So I know people might not agree with his perspective on that, but um, but I certainly appreciate his willingness to share it. And as far as I'm concerned, man, I got a, a Harvard uh, Harvard Law lesson for free. And at least once upon a time, and for most of this country's history, actually, that was a very prestigious thing and a highly valuable commodity. So I want to ma uh, maximize that limited time I have with discussions on the law and hearing what he has to say and not get lost in trying to take up the sword to debate on every political issue possible. Um, also, I really appreciated the insight he gave me on the inner workings of the Supreme Court, specifically that some justices rely more on their clerks than others. 
and the question of who's really writing the Supreme Court opinions. I, I guess I shouldn't really be surprised to learn that clerks do a lot of that, if not close to all of that for some justices. Um, it's just more federal government bureaucracy, of course. That is the norm, not the exception. So it does make sense. At least my admiration for Scalia still stands. Uh, it was not some clerk writing those opinions for him, and I'm glad to know that. Tim, you had a thought. Look, I think having underlings write stuff is not so much the issue as long as they give them an outline of this is my opinion, can you just, you know, bulk it out maybe. But if they're basically representing them entirely and pretending to be them, yeah, that's kind of an issue, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I, I'm I'm, I'm sure a lot of what he said, you know, he was talking about uh, his experience with Scalia, you know, back in, well, decades ago at this point. Uh, but I'm sure a lot of that reliance on clerks is still the norm. Anyway, uh, I have a problem, Tim. I I overprepare for this show routinely, and I can't stop it. But that's because I I enjoy doing it. So we're we got about ten minutes left in the hour, and there's no way I'm going to get through the topics of Ilhan Omar and Corey Bush plus email questions. So I'm going to make the executive decision that we're going to save email questions for a future week. But uh, before we get to the end of the show, I got to talk about the latest from Ilhan Omar and Corey Bush because the squad is apparently in trouble. What else is new? Uh, I don't find either of these pieces of news surprising in any way, but that doesn't mean that they're excusable and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't apply scrutiny to them. Especially with Ilhan Omar, though, she has long been the congresswoman from Mogadishu. It's just in this case, she said so explicitly, depending on the translation you believe. But the thing is, even the translation that she is providing in the Minneapolis Star Tribune is confirming as accurate is not great either. If for the only reason that it's wildly hypocritical. But during a speech on Saturday, this was an event to commemorate our recent elections in Somalia. And this event was at a, a downtown Minneapolis hotel. In this speech... Ilhan Omar, according to the translation that is presented in a particular Twitter clip, says that she will use her power in Congress to protect Somalia and advance Somalian interests in these regional disputes that are ongoing. There's an effort to split the country apart. Somalian politics are not an area of expertise for me. So I just know that there's some territorial dispute going on. The viral clip has a translation that again, Omar is disputing. We'll get to that in a minute. I'll do my best to read some of that translation here. Bear with me. Um, Many Somalians uh, uh, personally encourage me to speak to the U.S. government uh, to help Somalia. They want to know what the U.S. government could do for Somalia. My answer to Somalians was the U.S. government will only do what the U.S. tells them to do or what Somalians in the U.S. tell them to do. They do what uh, we want and nothing else. They must follow our orders. We Somalians have the confidence in ourselves. We live in the U.S. We pay taxes in the U.S. Uh, the U.S. is a country where one of your daughters, me, is in Congress. And as long as I'm in Congress, Somalia will never be in danger. Our waters will not be stolen by Ethiopia or anybody else. The U.S. would not dare to support anyone against Somalia, steal our land or resources. You can sleep in comfort knowing I'm here to protect the interests of Somalia from inside the U.S. system. 
This woman, uh, me, you sent me to Congress. I'm working day and night. I know the plight of Somalians. I'm as concerned about Somalia as you are. Together, we'll protect the interests of Somalia. And Somalia is for Somalis only, as over 45% of Somalia's population. They're not even ethnic Somali, uh, Somalis. Wow, imagine that controversy. Now, the most damning language uh, in that particular translation being, um, I am here to protect the interests of Somalia from inside the U.S. system. Ilhan Omar and the Star Tribune in Minneapolis, they are disputing the accuracy of that translation. Omar provided a link to a translation she says is better. And the Minneapolis Star Tribune had uh, a Somali-speaking person review that that translation. They say it is accurate. It reads in part... Oh, where did I lose the highlight? Oh, here we go. Reads in part, My answer was the U.S. government will do what we tell the U.S. government to do. We as Somalis should have that confidence in ourselves. We live in this country. We pay, we pay taxes in this country. It's a country where one of your own as in Ilhan Omar, sits in Congress. As long as I'm in Congress, no one will take Somalia's sea, and the United States will not support other people to rob us. Rest assured, Minnesotans, the woman you sent to Congress is aware of you and has the same interest as you. Okay, that's <laughs> that's still a slightly softened version of effectively the same thing. The primary theme remains. The U.S. Congress is a vehicle to advance Somalian interests. Also notable are the other points of criticism that the Star Tribune fact check, at least as far as I see, doesn't really address. Um, in the American context, of course, Ilhan Omar is constantly speaking about diversity. We have to open our borders to all the world's people. Diversity is our strength. Yet in Somalia, she says Somalia, Somalia is for Somalis only. Talks about how it's a problem that 45% of people in Somalia are not, in fact, ethnic Somalis. Sounds awfully ethno-nationalist. Maybe hateful to me if a white person said such a thing in this country. And the other problem, of course, is that, that Ilhan Omar, in the context of the, of, uh, the U.S. and Israel, has constant questions about dual loyalty. And... To a large extent, I actually think that there's a fair point there. Does the U.S. exist to advance its own interest or does it exist to prop up other countries? But I think it's entirely inconsistent to say pro-Israel policy from the U.S. is dual loyalty, but pro-Somalia policy from the U.S., well, that's just doing the right thing. It's either U.S. interest is first, whether that uh, you know benefits Israel or Somalia or not, or the aim of the policy in question is the benefit of somebody or something else. Now there are calls to um, expel Ilhan Omar from Congress and even, even send her back to Mogadishu, including from Ron DeSantis, which is, is something of an aggressive stance for him. I would say DeSantis tweeted expel from Congress, denaturalize and deport. Now I suppose in a sane country that might be a consideration in this one. She actually could shoot down one of our Blackhawks with an RPG Mogadishu style and Democrats still will not vote her out. So she's not going anywhere. Takes a two thirds vote in the House to expel a member. Not going to happen. I'm not even sure that that all Republicans would support such a thing. 
So she's not getting kicked out of Congress. As far as denaturalization, my sources say, lawyers speaking with Newsweek say, um, that can only happen if citizenship was gained through nefarious means. Well, you can ask Ilhan Omar's brother slash husband about nefarious means of gaining citizenship. So maybe there's something to that. Uh, deportation would generally require some sort of criminal act. Now, if there was fraud in the in her gaining citizenship, maybe there's some criminality there, I suppose. The speech that we just heard, I mean, I consider the content to be pretty outrageous. As far as the speech alone, though, it's tough to argue that the speech itself is criminal unless you want to uh, make a, a treason claim about it, which I suppose you could make that argument. Um, I actually, <laughs> I think I think denaturalization and de and and sending her back to Somalia is more likely than getting kicked out of Congress. In fact, I'm, even if we did send her back, she might still serve in Congress on Zoom or something like that. Um, bottom line, nothing that matters is going to come out of this Ilhan Omar controversy, even if uh, Ilhan Omar does deserve a, a fishing boat ride to Mogadishu and to be dropped off with a, a rusty AK and a good luck wish. But that's Ilhan Omar. We also have fellow squad member Corey Bush under scrutiny this week. And she could conceivably face some consequences, or at least there is an active Justice Department investigation into her and her spending on her security detail that features, wow, her husband. On Tuesday, Bush confirmed the investigation into her with a press conference in which she insisted that she's done nothing wrong and she only hired her husband because he's a trained security guard who will uh, provide the job or do the job uh, at fair market rate or below fair market rate. Any claim otherwise is just a right-wing smear. I hold myself, my campaign, and my position to the highest levels of integrity. I also believe in transparency, which is why I can confirm that the Department of Justice is reviewing my campaign spending on security services. I have endured relentless threats to my physical safety and life. As a rank-and-file member of Congress, I am not entitled to personal protection by the House and instead have used campaign funds as permissible to retain security services. I have not used any federal tax dollars for personal security services. Any reporting that I have used funds for personal, secu for personal security is simply false. Right-wing organizations have lodged baseless complaints against me. I retained my husband as part of my security team to provide security services because he has had extensive experience in this area. It's not just the DOJ investigating her, by the way. It's also the Federal Election Commission on the spending of campaign money. There's the House Ethics Committee as well, though the House Ethics Committee previously investigated her and dismissed the case. But as far as the accusations... Uh, Corey Bush has spent more than half a million dollars on her own private security with her husband, Courtney Merritt's pocketing more than a hundred thousand dollars in that he was on Bush's campaign payroll in January, 2022. Her campaign finance reports list his payments first as security. And then that was changed to uh, later switched to wage expenses. Despite her claims about her husband's, uh, qualifications for the job, he does not actually have any type of security licensure or accreditation. Uh, bottom line, this really has the appearance of the old Fannie Willis trick 
Uh, you funnel money to your lover under the guise of providing some service. And you cash in with personal benefit. I don't know if Cory Bush took nice vacations to Napa or uh, Caribbean cruise or anything like that. But perhaps there's something similar going on. She mentioned the DOJ is investigating her as well. It's not um, it's not just the improper spending of campaign money, potentially. There's also some suspicion, apparently, about the fraudulent use of federal security money, which she denies. As in some of the spending here that's uh, that's disputed, some of it is campaign money that was sent to her for campaign purposes that might be, you know fraudulently funneled to herself through her husband. Some of it is federal security money, as in, I suppose, out of the the budget that members of Congress get to provide for their offices or however else, you know, they're they're compensated for services they need to obtain. So we have an investigation into both sources. In either case, it would be taking money that is designated for one purpose, finding a way to funnel it through your spouse and get some sweet kickbacks for yourself would be the nature of the allegation in both cases. Now, this campaign finance stuff, most often for people, just ends with a slap on the wrist. Unless, of course, you're Dinesh D'Souza. If you're Dinesh D'Souza, you go to prison. Cory Bush is not Dinesh D'Souza, so I would not expect to see Cory Bush in prison. But perhaps there will be something that comes of it. Uh, Tim, you had a thought. Yeah, firstly, a bit of a tangent. I'm hearing so many people pronounce it Bonnie Willis. As no, in, can you no. turn the light on for me? Yeah, no, I'm not doing it's, that it's either. Fanny. No, it's I'm, Fanny. I'm, I'm team Fanny, Fanny forever, Absolutely. yeah. I don't care. Yeah, exactly. I don't care if Fanny I'm, herself says Fawny or however you're saying it. Yeah, exactly. That's why I thought I'm like, no, it's Fanny. Just say it, Fanny. Yeah. Stop it. Um, but it's not just her. I think it was at AOC, and this might have been during campaigning. I can't remember if she was in office yet, was paying her boyfriend for, I think they labeled it as consulting. So there's been a few people that have actually done this. I don't even know if you remember that case uh, from back in the day. No. It's a no. few years old. Yeah, now. I don't know that one, or the specifics at least. Um, but yeah, I've definitely seen a few people do this, and you know, I have no doubt they would kick out every Republican that ever did this in a, in a heartbeat. They wouldn't even think about it. So, Well, uh, perhaps, but uh, we'll, we'll see what comes of it. Uh, all right. I mentioned I will um, postpone or postpone uh, email questions until next week. We do have a couple of them. So for emailers, what are the names? Uh, Jason and Nomad. I will come back to your questions next week. So thanks for sending those in. And if you would like to send an email question for the show, of course, remember, just head on over to my website, mattchristensenmedia.com slash contact. Look for the MC Hour questions box. That's where we take questions for consideration on the show. And we will get into these questions about Illinois gun control and civil asset forfeiture next week. Unless I accidentally go way too long again next week. But I'm trying, man. Practice makes perfect. Let's catch up on Super Chat before we uh, call it a night. Yeah, so I'm looking over at Rumble Rants. It doesn't look like we have any of those tonight. Okay. Um, but over on YouTube... Uh, apparently Mint 20 is rolling in the cash this week. Wow. Because he seems to be the guy that sent all the Super Chats this okay. week. So well, thank you. Thank Mint. you, Mint 20. Appreciate the support. Uh, so firstly, uh, glad to be back for the Matt Christensen 1.5 hour. I'm trying to yeah, stay true to enough. brand. That's why I have That's why I have uh, excluded the email question. So it is not the 1.5 hour. Thank you. Uh also, he says, import foreign nationals act surprised when they use our country to advance their national interests. 
Who could have predicted this? Yeah, I can't Which, believe yeah. it. Uh, what a shocking development. <laughs> but she insists that her primary loyalty is the United States. Okay. All right. Take and I would have to assume I would have to assume that the um the oath of citizenship, I mean, there's nothing legally binding in that. It's literally just a essentially a promise of uh, like a nice a gesture. That's the word I'm looking I for. I don't know the answer to that. I'd have to talk to an immigration lawyer. That is to say, if you I know if you commit crimes, there are uh citizenship and, and immigration implications to that. Like we were talking about with Ilhan Omar uh, in the in the piece from Newsweek there, uh, from from the immigration lawyers discussing there. But is your question would be: Is coming to the United States, taking an oath to the United States, or to support the United States, but then coming in here and saying a bunch of stuff about how actually we should promote this other country's interest first? Is that a violation of the oath that should itself be punished? Yeah, yeah. I'm just curious because from what I can tell from the research, I couldn't find the wording of the oath itself, but the indication is that you you literally uh, take an oath that you will forsake all other countries, you will be loyal to the United States. So yeah, and I, that does seem to be in violation of it. I, I'm a, Oaths need to mean something. They don't mean much, not just for people coming into this country, but they don't mean much for government officials these days anymore. Uh, anyway, so if, if the oath is not enforceable, then it doesn't really mean anything when you say it and don't get me wrong. I'm a big free speech guy. Okay. I don't want to crack down on people's opinions and all that. However, no one forces you to take an oath of office or an oath of loyalty to this country. You voluntarily accept that obligation when you either gain political office or you immigrate to this country from somewhere else. And so if you accept the terms of the office or entry into the country and then betray those terms, I mean, that's not a free speech issue. That's you breaking the rules. That's you breaking the contract to which you agreed. So, uh, yeah, we, we need we need some better enforcement mechanisms, I would say. Uh, so next one from Mint. In a proper society, this woman uh, would not be in politics, be denaturalized, and either run out of the country or dealt with through other means. I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, I think he's talking about uh, a strongly worded letter. That's what ah, I would yes. suggest. Oh, one of one of those ones in a really you know scary font. Yeah, all red. Yeah, yeah a ransom enough. note, like cut, the old style, right? You could get a bunch of magazines. You cut out the letters. You take the uh, glue stick and you stick them on. You mail it in. That sternly, that strongly. However, strongly, sternly worded, whatever. And last one from Mint Twenty. Oh, he clarifies about what nefarious <laughs> means. So uh, as for nefarious means, oh, he's, remember he's that to, you have to. So yeah, as for nefarious means, for remember that you have to swear an oath renouncing all lo loyalties to foreign states, monarchs, etc. Which yeah, I just which I just mentioned there. Her announcement of loyalties to Somalia could be considered a yeah. lie to that, and that was the question I was asking: is is that a violation, or is it just a gesture that you say, you know, so people feel all good about you know you pretending yeah. you have loyalty to the country. Yeah, sorry for talking over you there. I thought he was referring to the nefarious means of what he meant was an appropriate consequence. He's referring to Ilhan Omar's nefarious terms of entry. That's what he's talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, that's the point that I just made. If you agree to, to X terms as a condition of entry, as a condition of uh, your citizenship, and then you 
go out and openly speak against X terms to which you agreed. That that seems to me like a breach of contract type scenario rather than just like a, a cracking down on a free speech type issue. But and I, th- I think Mint might be putting in the chat here the wording from the oath. Possibly, okay. I hereby declare I absolutely entirely renounce and abjure. I've never even heard that word. All allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, uh, p- uh, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have here to for being a subject or citizen. Yeah, well, she's certainly not rejecting former loyalty. <laughs> you can make that point. Uh, yeah, exactly. E- yeah. Even if you take the uh, rosier translation, which she provided, I mean, it it does invite the question, what is the primary loyalty here? Does the U.S. exist to serve Somalia or are you here to serve your American constituents in their relationship with the federal government? Which of those is true? They are kind of mutually exclusive, or at least one has to take priority over the other. And I would like to hear her answer, but I'm not going to get that, of course. All right. Uh, we all set. Uh, looks like it. Nothing coming up in Rumble yet. And I'll just refresh to make sure. But looks like YouTube are all done. So all right. no, I think we're good. Well, thank you, Mint. And thanks, Tim, for reading those. And uh, thanks, of course, again to my guest this evening, uh, Lawrence Lessig from Harvard Law School. And thanks to you, dear listener, for tuning in tonight and for everybody uh, chatting as well. We appreciate you. If you missed any part of the show or you'd like more to listen to, there's more content over on my website, mattchristensenmedia.com. If you're new to the Tenant Media channel, a like and a subscribe are much appreciated as well. We'll be back each and every Wednesday night. This has been the Matt Christensen Hour on Tenant Media. <laughs>